0: This morning I want to ask that you take a little bit of a journey with me as we begin. Seeing some of the things that happen with our Lord and with His disciples. And I want to ask you to begin by turning in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You immediately recognize this as being what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This... Most likely, although the Bible never claims the Gospels to be chronological, that means it doesn't always happen in exact order. However, we do understand and believe that this was likely towards the beginning of our Lord's ministry as he is speaking here on this mountain, and the multitudes gathered in front of Him. The disciples actually gathered in front of Him. He begins by telling them blessedly in the very first verses of the Sermon on the Mount that there's heaven. That's what He says. If you look down at uh, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love that. He tells them right away, there's a life after death. There's life after death for those who follow me. But I want to look down a little bit further after he's doing this teaching, and he has to be already somewhat well known because of the amount of people that were there, the multitudes that were following and listening to him. But look down, if you would please, to verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Interesting statement of our Lord. And I want to just look at this a little bit. He uses descriptive language here. And what he does is he says the law is not going to go away. It's not going to pass away. And he uses these two terms. He uses here translated the smallest letter or stroke. But we read in the King James Bible and even the 1901 American Standard, it translates it jot or tittle. You've heard that, right? Not one jot or tittle will pass away. And what he's talking about is what we commonly call, or it's translated from the Greek iota. That's the smallest letter. And it was just a little letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. We, we speak about iota. Not one iota of this or that will you get. And then he uses this term for the uh, stroke, which is a reference to almost like an accent mark in the Hebrew. It's like a little accent mark that you'll find throughout the Hebrew to give special emphasis to a word or to give special meaning to a word. And so what Jesus is saying, none of these things will pass away from the law from the sovereign God's self-revelation to man, given to us the Scriptures, nothing will pass away. Now, they would have known the Old Testament Scriptures. They would have known the books in the Old Testament, the teaching in the Old Testament. And so, Jesus is using the term law as a overriding term to describe all of that, any of that. And He says, none of it's going to go away. It's all going to be there, but it is, he says, going to be fulfilled. By the way, he's so precise in what he says, because in the Greek it's one jot, one tittle, not even one aspect, not even one letter, not even one stroke will pass away. And so, do not think that I came to abolish them. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And none of them will pass away until until all is accomplished. He's telling them that everything that God has given you in the Scriptures, everything that He has brought to us in His Word will stand. Nothing will be missed. Not even the smallest aspect. Now, why is that important? Why is that important to them? Well, they were the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees. They loved the law. They thought the law was more important than God. They focused more on the preciseness of the law and keeping the law than they actually focused on their hearts being right with God. So Jesus stands there and He says to them, none of it is going to be done away. But why is that important to you and me? Why is that important to us? That not one jot, not one tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled? Because it all pointed to Him. All of that Scripture points to the Messiah. The One who will fulfill. The One who will come and accomplish everything that is given in His Word. The things that the Messiah will do are promised right from Genesis chapter 3. The Proto-Evangelium. The promise of the coming Messiah. And then all through the Scriptures going through and seeing the things that God promised to Abraham and seeing in the Scriptures the fact that the woman will conceive. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Seeing in Isaiah further that this one will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All of these things pointing to Him and none of them, none of them are going to pass away. And none of them will fail to be fulfilled or accomplished. So much of the Scriptures pointed to him. And I ask you to look again at verse 17 and think with me about what Jesus is saying. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What a bold statement he's making. How could a man abolish the Scriptures? How could a mere man fulfill the Scriptures? He couldn't! Messiah could. God with man, the God-man Jesus is able to accomplish and to fulfill The audacity of this man to think, I have have not come to abolish this. Can you imagine what scribes or Pharisees might have thought hearing this? How dare he think that he could abolish God's Word? They did not realize that they were in the presence of the living God, the God-man Jesus, who indeed fulfills the Scriptures. He is the promised One, the One that every one of the Scriptures pointed to every jot and tittle had to stay because they pointed to Him. That's a profound statement that He would do that. Now, this is what He says to the people. That He has come and that every bit of the Word of God is going to be maintained. All that the Messiah was promised would come to pass. Now, look over a few pages to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. In the process of His ministry, our Lord Jesus has called the disciples to Himself. We like to call the twelve apostles. He's called these apostles to Himself. They are His main followers. They are the ones He has interaction with. He speaks to. He teaches. He tells them many things. And after saying that He is the one that's going to accomplish all that the Scriptures have said, He begins now in this passage and in others that you find in the Scriptures to tell the disciples what's going to happen. We have here in chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew the Caesarea Philippi declaration of Peter when he asks them, who do men say that I am? He says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now look at verse 21. From that time... Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Now it says from that time He began to tell them. Which indicates that He continued to tell them. He was telling them. And you see that in the the Gospels. That there are several occasions, several times that we even read that Jesus told them this is what's going to happen. And He's telling them right here plainly that He must be handed over and He must suffer. He must be killed and then raised on the third day. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's a reference to the passion of our Lord. His death, burial, and resurrection. But the disciples never seemed to get it. They never seemed to understand what Jesus was saying. Even though He's saying it very plainly, here's what's going to happen. And even though we know that this is what all of those Scriptures that He was talking about there on the Sermon of the Mount, all of those Scriptures pointed to the Messiah doing this. The Messiah being crucified, as you read in Psalm 22. The Messiah suffering for our sins, as we saw in Isaiah 53. All of these things are what He is supposed to do. The disciples never seem to get it. In fact, if you look at verse 22... And Peter said to Him and began to rebuke Him, saying, God forbid it, Lord! That shall never happen to You. But he, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind Me, Satan, for you're a stumbling block. And you know what happened. The disciples just didn't get it. They didn't understand that Jesus was supposed to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and then raised up on the third day. They never, even though He said it, it's like they they just didn't get it. And so, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happened? The disciples fled. The disciples ran away. The disciples hid. Peter's outside the courtyard when he's on trial and he denies that he even knew Jesus. All of these things, the disciples are in all kinds of disarray. And then when He dies, what happens? They're discouraged. They're downcast. They just didn't understand. now, Acts chapter 2. Something happened that changed everything. Acts chapter 2. Verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, and guess what? Now they get it. Even though they saw the resurrected Christ, Peter still goes back to fishing. Until here. Now, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the disciples and they come out of hiding! They're, they're locked away. They're in hiding. They come out of hiding and boldly proclaim to all the people that are gathered there in Jerusalem from all over the world, the text tells us right here. From all over the place. They're there in, in uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, for the Feast of Pentecost. And Peter stands up and he proclaims Christ and shows right here in chapter 2 how Jesus is The Messiah, the promised Son of God, the God-man who came and dwelled among men. And they are bold for His kingdom, which leads us to the text that we have been studying in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. After seeing thousands of people saved, multitudes of people saved, now the disciples really get it. They get it so much that they rejoice that they were even found worthy to suffer for Christ as they were in this chapter beaten for teaching about Jesus. They're rejoicing. They're happy They're count- that they were counted worthy to even suffer for Christ. And here we have their testimony in their prayer. As they say, beginning in verse 25, "...who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your father David the servant..." Thy servant did say, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Thy holy servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. They got it. What does he mean when he says thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur? Not one jot. Not one tittle will pass away. It'll all happen exactly as the sovereign God said it would from the beginning of His dealing with men in the Garden of Eden. He promised it. He prophesied about it throughout the whole Old Testament. Jesus comes and says, None of it's going to be done away with. It's going to be accomplished and fulfilled in me. And this is what they're saying, what thy hand, what thy purpose predestined to occur. We began looking at this passage several weeks ago under the broad heading, understanding what was being said. And we took first verse 28 and opened up a little bit regarding the predestination of God in this whole matter. The sovereignty of God in the cross of Christ. And they dealt with the sovereignty of God as they spoke of, first of all, the power of God when they mentioned Thy hand. And you see in the Old Testament, oftentimes, the mighty right hand of God or the mighty hand of God. Speaking of His Almighty, His power, His great strength, unrivaled, unmatched, unable to be done away with or stopped. His mighty hand brings to pass what He has preordained. Then they speak of the purpose of God, the power of God, and the purpose of God. As they say, Thy purpose. The eternal plan of God from all eternity and then His predestination. Bringing to pass. Bringing to fulfillment His plan. His sovereign plan. People, the God of the Bible is sovereign. It simply means that He is in control. That He is Lord of all. King of kings, Lord of lords, to say anything less about Him is to deny His deity. If you do not believe that God is in control, who is? Chance? Man? Evolution? God is God! He is the God who is in control Of all things. The Sovereign. The Almighty. The Powerful. The Holy God of the Bible. He is our Lord. We bow before Him. And give glory to Him. For He alone is God. And worthy of our praise and adoration. As our King. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God. Now we talked about this in regards to Him being over all and what this means to even these men right here praying this prayer. God, we were just beaten for You. We understand that we're going to face hardships and trials for You, but we know that You are in control. And You bring that down to Your life today. And you can rest assured and be comforted in knowing that the God who is God is in control of all things, even in your life, in my life. Some things are hard. Some things are difficult. Certainly we face trials. But when you know the God of the Bible this way, as the God who is in control, even the trials are His trials. And you see in the Scriptures that He sends trials for our testing, for our maturing in grace and following Him in our lives to strive for holiness, to honor Him. These are His testings to His children. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, He speaks about your fathers discipline you as they saw fit. And you still love them and realize that it's for your good. Our Father sometimes disciplines and tests us. This is for our good. As the sovereign God, the things that we go through are from His gracious hand. As well as, as all His kind providences, His gracious provision, the help that He gives day by day, the blessings that He showered upon so many of us, even in this place. Our homes, our cars, all that we have come from the hand of a mighty, sovereign, gracious God. It is all from Him. And we thank Him. This is what these men are praying. That is what we understand that they are saying in verse 28 as they speak of His hand and His purpose and His predestination to bring these things to pass. Now, we've backed up. Look at verse 27. For here they say in verse 27, Truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever thy hand and purpose predestined. And what are they talking about? They're talking about His death and burial and resurrection. Particularly, they're focusing on His death. Because they didn't raise Him up. But they are certainly the ones who in their minds sent Him to the cross. They are the ones, the Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the nation of Israel who cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They are the ones who drove Him to the cross in their minds. The disciples have it right. It was the sovereign hand of God working all these things. But this is what we're putting together now. And we're looking at What we see in the Scriptures as the sovereignty of God in the cross of Christ. If your theology is right, you should see it worked out in the Scripture. If you believe that God is the God who is in control, if you believe that God is the God who is sovereign, then you should see that over and over shown in the Scriptures. And that's what we have begun to see. Several weeks ago, we looked first at God's sovereignty over the sending of His Son. Take your Bibles and look at Galatians chapter 4. Wait a minute, you say? The Incarnation doesn't have anything to do with His passion. The Incarnation doesn't have anything to do with the cross. Oh, yes, it does. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 4 verse We'll start at verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He's talking about redemption. Where did redemption occur? What brought about the payment of our sin debt? It was Jesus' shed blood on the cross. It was the cross of Christ where He died that gave us freedom from the bondage of sin as His sacrificial death is applied to our lives. We were once bound to sin And now we are joined to Christ and therefore slaves to righteousness. That happened with His redemption. But before that, Paul says in verse 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son born of a woman under the law. What's that? That's the incarnation. When did the incarnation happen? At the exact Right time. In the fullness of time. According to God's sovereign eternal plan. According to God's sovereign eternal purpose. One of those jots or tittles. In the exact fullness of time, Jesus came forth born of a woman. Remember, all of the things that we mentioned there. He had to come when there was crucifixion. Crucifixion is depicted in Psalm 22. He had to be hung on a tree. He had to have His blood shed. It wouldn't be the same if He was killed with electrocution or it wouldn't be the same if He was injection like they do now. It wouldn't be the same at all. It was then that crucifixion was being practiced by Rome. It was then that the Jewish leaders were so rebellious that they had to have one come and teach the people the truth of the law. The truth of His Word. The right time. The fullness of time. God sent forth His Son. That's God's sovereignty over the sending of His Son. Let's turn next to Jesus' sovereignty ordering the raising of Lazarus. Let's go to John's Gospel, chapter 11. John's Gospel, chapter 11. The reason I wanted to begin with the raising of Lazarus is because as you know and as we will see, this was the catalyst that really forced the hand of the Jews. We see so much that begins to happen so rapidly, beginning now with the raising of Lazarus. So, Jesus' sovereignty Ordering the raising of Lazarus. Here, let's begin in verses 1 through 4. As we see, he purposefully stayed. He purposefully stayed. Now, a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Jesus is the all-knowing God. Do you think that Jesus didn't know Lazarus was going to die physically? He did. And yet He says this sickness is not unto death. What did He mean? Exactly what He goes on to say, but unto the glory of God. Lazarus did not stay dead. He did die. The sickness was unto death. But from the glory of God and the exaltation of his son Jesus, Lazarus rose again. So this is what Jesus is talking about. Of course, the disciples couldn't understand this, but this is what Jesus is talking about. So what happens? Jesus does not leave. It says verse five. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister Martha, Lazarus. When, therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer. Now, it would have been a good, at least a day's journey back to Judea, where Lazarus was. So, Mary and Martha send somebody to tell Jesus, that's at least a day. They tell Jesus, He stays here at least two more days. He purposefully stayed. I want to point something out to you. I want you to see what Martha says in verse 21 and notice how exactly right she is. Verse 21. When Jesus actually comes, Jesus comes to Bethany near Jerusalem and Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why does she say that? Well, because Jesus healed a lot of people. And you know what? She's exactly right. If He had been there and healed Him, He would not have died. And then what would Lazarus be? Oh, He'd just be another one of those thousands of people that Jesus healed. All those people who follow after Him looking to be healed. Oh God, I'm lame. I'm blind. I can't speak. I have a demon. Heal me. And if Jesus had been there like Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever and He just raises her up and she begins to wait on them, Lazarus, He would have just raised them up and they would have begun talking together while Mary and Martha prepared dinner. It would have been just another One who was healed. Now when I say that, I don't mean to say that irreverently. I'm talking about theoretically. Because there's no such thing as just another person healed by Jesus. They're all amazing, fantastic, wonderful testimonies to the power of the Messiah who Jesus is. But you know what I'm saying? If Jesus had simply healed him from a sickness, there would not have been nearly the drama that was about to occur. So, what does happen? We go again to verse 6 where he stays for a little while. He stayed two days longer. And then we look down and we see in verse 14, Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is Dead. He stayed, but he knew Lazarus was dead. Perhaps by the time that that messenger reached where Jesus was, Lazarus had already died. And Jesus, as the omniscient God, the all knowing God, knew that Lazarus was dead. But The reason that he stayed was to ensure the fact that verse 39 tells us he's dead four days, probably dead four days in the grave and there would be a stench. His staying ensured the fact that Lazarus would be dead four days. Now, why is that significant? There were some mystics, and some even from the Jews who thought that a person would die and the Spirit could hover over them for a day and go back into them. A day or maybe even two. But they buried their dead within one day. So, too late if the Spirit was hovering for two. But here, He's dead four days. There is no question. There is no doubt. There is no speculation. He's dead. Stinking dead. Rotting dead. Decaying dead. He's dead. Four days dead. That's dead. That's real dead. And this is exactly what His staying behind cause. So he purposefully stayed so that there would be no question, no doubt that Lazarus was dead. But then he deliberately went. Look now at verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. And now you want to go back there? Let's go. Let's go because, He tells them then, that Lazarus is dead. He, he purposely stayed and then He deliberately goes. He goes to where Lazarus is. And the disciples knew what that meant. The disciples knew that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews were seeking to kill Him. For all that He had already done. Keep that in mind. All that He had already done to destroy them and their way. He already had so many people following after Him. He already had so many people coming and clamoring for Him to heal them and for Him to teach them. And they were already losing people to this 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 Jesus from Nazareth. No good thing comes from Nazareth. Why are these foolish people following Him? And yet, they were already. And so they already wanted to do away with Jesus. And the disciples knew it. And you know, doubting Thomas, this wimp doubting Thomas, but look what he says in verse 16. Thomas therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas had some guts. You don't hear that about any other disciple except Peter. But Thomas was a good guy. Thomas? Thomas? All you Thomases? Amen. Yeah. But Here's Thomas. And notice that he says, Let us also go that we may die with Him. They knew what it meant for Jesus to go back to Judea. They knew. And Jesus knew too. Jesus knew what this was about to accomplish. And that's what we don't want to miss in this whole thing. Jesus is in charge of this whole event. He purposefully stayed back to make sure Lazarus was good and dead. Stinking, rotten, dead. And then He purposefully goes, knowing what was about to happen and what it was to accomplish. He was the sovereign God who is in control and ordering all things. And then, of course, we have the account of Him powerfully raising Lazarus from the dead. If you look at verse 43 and 44, I can't go through everything that happens here. But you look down and he speaks to God. He prays to God. And he cried out with a loud voice in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth! And you know that we often say that if He didn't call Him by name, every dead person in that cemetery would have come out. Because this is the power of God. We know that nobody else could have gone to that cemetery and said, Lazarus, come forth, and anything happened. I've been to a lot of cemeteries. And I know better than to look at a grave and say, come forth, because I'm not God. So either he was delusional, a liar, or he was God. And the proof is in the next verse. He who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face and wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Untie him, let him go. Untie him and let him go. All of the molecules that had decayed away, and when you die, they decay away. They ooze. They go into the ground and the smell you smell or molecules going into the air. It all came back! And every single atom and every single molecule that was Lazarus was again Lazarus by the power of the Messiah, Jesus, who called on Him to come to life. And He did. Now what happens? Now what happens? Jesus forced the hands of the Pharisees. The Pharisees now had to do something. He forced their hand. Think about it. Think about it with me. What if Jesus didn't do this? What if Lazarus so dramatically was never raised from the dead in such a fashion as Jesus orchestrated what if the scribes and the Pharisees just said, we'll wait a little longer to see what happens. And you get Caiaphas up there and he goes, you know what, guys? You better leave this man alone. Don't mess with him. Just let him go. Let him be. And they stand back and they just watch and they just wait and they grow old and they die. And Jesus Is still alive. What if he didn't do this? What if he didn't bring this to such a a head that the Pharisees had to do something? Because look at the text. You read in verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we going to do? What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We'll lose everything. We can't let that happen. They had cushy jobs. They had good incomes. They couldn't lose it. And this is because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead if they had just if this had not happened if they had just watched and waited there would be no atonement for your sins no possibility of heaven no atoning death of jesus on the cross jesus was sovereignly bringing to pass every jot and tittle from the scriptures to accomplish What God had ordained in His plan from all eternity as the sovereign God who is God. And here He brings this to a head by this great miracle which then leads to all these other things which culminate in the cross. Because what happens next? People hear about this. People hear about Lazarus being raised from the dead. People there in Jerusalem for the Passover. It's all buzz. Jesus raised, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, raised this guy who was dead and in the tomb. He was dead four days. Jesus raised him. It's an amazing miracle. Nothing like this has ever happened in all of Israel. So the people are, are flocking up from Jerusalem to Bethany to see this great miracle as Jesus is coming down on a donkey, which had to happen. His triumphal entry had to happen because it was prophesied in Scripture. So all of this, is being orchestrated by our Lord Jesus, the raising of Lazarus, which gives rise to His riding on this donkey into Jerusalem. And the people are crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna, Son of David! Now don't you think the Pharisees are even more furious They're already saying people are going after Him. Now, here's a vivid, visible picture of it. The whole city is come out and calling Him the Messiah. What hope do we have to retain our place and our nation now? Look, the whole world is going after Him. Jesus, the Sovereign God, Bringing to pass what God had ordained in the prophets, in the law, in the scriptures. Just as God said it would. This added to their resolve. They had to act. They had to kill Jesus. This powerful miracle was orchestrated by Jesus It was not chance. God does not leave things to chance. Remember we said there's no such thing as luck. Pagans might say good luck. Christians say the kind providence of God. (laughs) God did not leave this to chance that they would take Him and crucify Him. It was not just karma coming back on Him. This is Sovereign God mightily orchestrating the events that He foretold that Messiah would shed His blood on a tree for His people. It all happened under the Sovereign, Almighty Hand of God, part of His eternal plan. Now, Acts chapter 4. This is what the disciples are talking about. And I want to make again a little bit of application. We live in a day when we are seeing something that in my very brief lifetime, we have never seen quite like this. Where we have a government that actually tells its generals and leaders in the military to train your soldiers and tell them that Christians are the enemy. That we are terrorists. That we are to be looked at as threats to America. That is what our government has been doing. And they're saying these kinds of things. And they're doing all kinds of wicked things. The promotion of this same gender lifestyle that we talked about last Lord's Day. The promotion. And that if you disagree with it, you're wrong. You're a homophobe. Or any of those things they're actually forcing this upon us. All this anti-Christian stuff like global warming and evolution, it's all happening. But look at verse 25. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ or His Anointed. You know, the rest of that, He sits in the heavens and laughs. And essentially, the disciples are here saying, they did all this thinking that they were going to destroy God's anointed. And in fact, all they did was what Thy sovereign hand and Thy purpose predestined to occur. God is in control. Even in the raising of Lazarus, bringing about the necessity in the minds of the Pharisees, we've got to do away with this guy. God was using their hardened hearts to bring to pass His purpose. Just like He did with Pharaoh and the miracles that God used to deliver Israel from captivity in Egypt. God was using their hardened hearts to bring to pass His eternal purpose. Now, I cannot leave the thought of that mighty miracle of Lazarus being raised by our Lord Jesus without considering that His sovereign act in that miracle brought about more than just the resolve of the Jews to kill Him. I should say the Pharisees and the leaders to kill Him it also gives us and shows us great assurance. Great assurance of the purposes of God for us. Because it is the same Jesus who tells us in that same chapter that I am the resurrection and the life. That He who believes in Me Even if he dies, will live. It is the same Jesus who says that I will raise him up on the last day. So this mighty miracle of our Lord. Yes, it forced the hands of the nation of Israel, the leaders of Israel, to kill him in their mind, in their thinking. But it also shows you that your God's eternal purpose for you will come to pass. Oh, believer in Jesus, take confidence. He will raise you up just as he raised Lazarus up. He gives life to his people, eternal life. This is not just a story, this is not just another miracle that we foolish Christians believe actually happened. This is one of those jots and tittles to us. It happened! It's real! We believe it. We are staking our very lives upon it. And it's His sovereign plan to let you know, what is that thing on your lap? That's a Bible. Where did you get that Bible? Sovereignly, watched over by God through the centuries. It is a reliable Bible that you have. Accurate. We don't have the original autographs. We don't have the original writings, but we have copies that are so accurate, so trustworthy, that you can believe that Bible in your hands. And that's how you know what Jesus did. Because God in His wisdom gave you this revelation of Himself and supernaturally watched over it so that in 2014 you can read about it. And you can even hear this raving, ranting preacher preach about it! Do you think any of that is an accident? Do you think that you have a Bible and read it and study it and understand it by chance? Do you think that you're here today because of luck? Or has the sovereign God been working in your life to open your eyes, to unstop your ears, to put in a heart of flesh for you To believe the things of His Word. To have confidence and faith that this one Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead is the same sovereign God who will raise you from the dead. He proved it with Lazarus. He proved it with His own resurrection. And we believe He will prove it in our lives as well. This is our great King. This is the God we worship. Let's pray.